everybody, and welcome back to To The Point. I'm Kate McKinney, the PR and Communications Manager here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point. If you're new around here, To The Point is an audio program note that gives you just enough background to help you better enjoy the ballet you're about to see. Oh, and we try to throw a little humor in there too sometimes. Well, today our topic of discussion is Romeo and Juliet, which you'll be seeing as part of SF Ballet's 2021 digital season. Romeo and Juliet is on the screen now. This ballet was choreographed in 1994 by artistic director and principal choreographer Helgi Thomason to the iconic music of Sergei Prokofiev with sets and costumes by Jens Jakob Borse. This ballet is a showpiece for San Francisco Ballet and its dancers and was most recently performed on tour in Copenhagen, Denmark. So we're going to talk a bit about the history of Romeo and Juliet as a ballet and as a musical score, discuss the story of Helgi Thomason's Romeo and Juliet, which stays closely aligned to its Shakespearean influence, and then chat a bit about what to look for as you watch. Ready? Then let's get to the point. It's no surprise that Romeo and Juliet is a huge success as a ballet. Star-crossed lovers and dueling families are pretty much perfect for the balletic stage. But interestingly, it's only been in the last 80 years that Romeo and Juliet has assumed its place in the ballet canon, and its path to widespread success was hardly assured. In fact, for a while there, it looked like this ballet was going to be doomed to the dustbins of history, a brilliant idea that would never see the light of day. So how did it come to be, and why is it now one of the most popular ballets in the world? Well, let's dive in. Romeo and Juliet's story really begins not with the dancing or the choreography, but with the music and it, with its composer, Sergei Prokofiev. As a note, most of my Prokofiev info is coming from two books by Princeton professor Simon Morrison. First, his 2009 text, The People's Artist, Prokofiev's Soviet Years, and second, his 2016 history of the Bolshoi Ballet, Bolshoi Confidential. By 1935, Prokofiev had spent much of the prior 18 years commuting between France, the United States, and the Soviet Union, enjoying an international career largely with the blessing of the Soviet government and largely able to evade their censorship and control. But that blessing and patience was wearing thin by the mid-1930s, and the Soviet government was, putting, was increasing pressure on Prokofiev to return home and become, truly, a Soviet composer. The threat that they posited was uh, to return to the Soviet Union permanently or else you won't be able to return at all. He might have ignored this threat if the only casualties had been seeing family and friends, but at this point in his career, he had several commissions on the table and big ones at that. The cantata for the 20th anniversary of October, the score for a filmed version of The Queen of Spades, incidental music for productions of Boris Godunov and Eugene Onegin, and the ballet score for Romeo and Juliet. And so Prokofiev officially brought his family, his wife Lena, and two sons back to the USSR permanently. This would turn out to be perhaps the biggest mistake of Prokofiev's life, as many of the promises made, mainly that he could return to have a career abroad and be afforded some degree of artistic freedom, turned out to be untrue. And yet, despite that, he made seminal works of art, not least his ballets Romeo and Juliet and Cinderella. Romeo and Juliet was begun that first summer he spent back in the USSR at Polonovo, where the Bolshoi Theater's artists spent their summer. While his family stayed in the main house, he retreated to a small cottage where he composed the first draft of Romeo and Juliet. But the ballet wouldn't appear on stage for another five years, a result of infighting and drama and the likes of which belong on stage rather than backstage. Prokofiev had selected the subject in consultation with artists from the Kirov Theater, Adrian Piotrovsky and Sergei Radlov, but internal politics saw Radlov fired from the Kirov and the ballet shelved. 
Vladimir Ivanovich Mutnik, then the general director at the Bolshoi, swooped in to try to acquire the ballet for the Bolshoi Theater, retaining Piotrovsky as the librettist. Together, they worked on the adaptation of the story, and given that it was being written in Soviet Russia, it was truly an adaptation. Why? Well, Soviet art in this period was in the midst of a creative movement known as socialist realism, and the impact of that was pretty far-reaching in terms of what kinds of stories could be told. And so let's backtrack a minute here and talk about Soviet ballet in the 1930s and 1940s, this moment when Romeo and Juliet was first created. In theory, the Russian Revolution should have been the end of ballet in Russia. An aristocratic, foreign art form should have had no place in the revolutionary state. But people like Anatoly Lunacharsky, appointed by Lenin as Commissar of Education in charge of cultural affairs and a key figure in bringing Prokofiev back to the country, argued that to throw out high art would be a loss. Instead, he argued that the proletariat must build on the aristocratic art forms and build upon them. Lunacharsky, along with Elena Malinovskaya at the Kirov Ballet and Alexander Gorsky at the Bolshoi, believed that ballet could become popular theater of interest and appeal to the masses. And they were right. As theaters reopened in January 1918, the public flocked to the ballet. Moreover, following the revolution, the idea also began to arise that perhaps this wordless art form, this universal language of dance, might be precisely the kind of art most useful in educating audiences not necessarily literate in Russian, both within the boundaries of the empire and beyond them. But what that art should look like remained a matter of contention. In the first years following the revolution, the answer looked like it would be in the creation of avant-garde revolutionary art, art more like that seen in France by Russian expats such as Mikhail Fokin. But the death of Lenin brought a quick about-face as Joseph Stalin rose to power. The avant-garde was out, decried as formalist, and a new mode of ballet, the drama ballet, was in. In these works, abstraction and allegory are out, straightforward, uplifting stories of workers and innocent women are in. So what does that mean for Romeo and Juliet? Well, at first, it had to somehow gesture toward revolution. How? Well, the focus of the plot would shift from being just about the struggle between the Montagues and Capulets and toward a struggle between new and old political orders. But also, and here's where things get very strange, there would be a happy ending. Wait, why? Well, as Prokofiev said, dead dancers can't dance. But more so because 1930s drama ballet aesthetics demanded optimistic tragedies, and the double suicide is hardly optimistic. Instead, Friar Lawrence made it there in time to tell Romeo that Juliet had only taken a sleeping potion, and the couple managed to run away together. Unfortunately, this revised ending didn't play as well as Prokofiev thought it would. The conductor of the theater disliked the music, and although a Shakespeare expert employed by the state supported the unusual ending, the ballet found itself shelved officially when it was decided that the theater needed to undergo an ideological review. A review that led, in the end, to Mutnik's arrest and execution, and presaged the Great Terror, which would also lay claim to Piotrovsky. The ballet's association with enemies of the state meant it was shelved until further notice. Ultimately, the ballet wouldn't be staged in Russia until 1940. Instead, it got its premiere in 1938 in Czechoslovakia in a reduced one-act version choreographed by Ivo Vanya Psota, which ran for seven performances before being shut down by the Nazi invasion. Prokofiev wasn't allowed to leave the Soviet Union to see it, but this started a renaissance for the ballet's score. Prokofiev also pulled out three orchestral suites for orchestra, and the music began to circulate more widely in both the Eastern and Western blocs. 
1939, Prokofiev was approached by Leonid Lavrovsky of the Kirov Ballet to create a ballet to the score, and he agreed, but in doing so, lost control. Lavrovsky made several changes to the score and the libretto, including adding back in the tragic ending, and made it a true drum ballet in the Soviet style. This ballet, starring Galina Ulanova, was an immediate success and was then restaged at the Bolshoi Ballet in 1946. It was that version, Lavrovsky's choreography, Prokofiev's score, and the Bolshoi dancers, that toured to Western Europe in the late 1950s and was a huge success. But meanwhile, the score was already circulating, and Sir Frederick Ashton created his version for the Royal Danish Ballet in 1955 without being influenced by Lavrovsky's production, which had not yet been seen in the West. In 1956, John Cranko and Kenneth Macmillan saw Lavrovsky's Romeo and Juliet in London, danced by the Bolshoi, and both men's famous versions of this ballet, Cranko's in Milan in 1958, then at Stuttgart Ballet in 1962, Macmillan's at the Royal Ballet in 1965, show Lavrovsky's influence. Since then, dozens of choreographers have taken on this ballet. Unlike something like Swan Lake or Giselle, it doesn't have a set choreographic text. As we just said, Ashton and Lavrovsky were both kind of working with the music in parallel without having seen each other's work. And so it has a kind of flexibility and an adaptability to different voices and contexts. People as different as Mark Morris, Jean-Christophe Mayot, Peter Martins, and our own Helgi Thomason have taken on this work and made it their own. Interestingly, this is a ballet that Helgi never performed in. He'd almost had the chance when Antony Tudor invited him to play Romeo in his one-act version of the ballet, but it didn't work out. And so Thomason's only experience with the work was performing a Romeo solo to Berlioz's symphonic adaptation at the 1969 Moscow International Ballet Competition. So when he started in on this production, he wasn't working from memory, but rather purely from imagination. So what is the ballet he made? Well, let's walk through the story and we'll talk about some of the details and what to look for at the same time. In Helgi's version, Romeo and Juliet is fundamentally a story of two feuding families, not just two lovers. So first, we meet them in the main piazza of Verona. The Montague crew are represented by Romeo, his two best buds, Mercutio and Benvolio, and his crush of the moment, Rosaline. The Capulets are headed up by Tybalt and friends. Boys being boys, they get in a fight that's quickly shut down by the Prince of Verona. Meanwhile, Juliet Capulet is back at the Capulet house, staying generally out of trouble with her nurse. That is, until her parents show up with a total stranger named Paris, who happens to be a count and who is also interested in marrying her. Juliet, romantic teenager that she is, isn't that into the idea. Her parents throw a party, which gets her out of this funk, especially once she sets eyes on Romeo, who manages to sneak in. Masquerade balls are good for this kind of teenage prank. Teenage hormones are flying, and the two are instantly enamored. Romeo showing up under her balcony later that night is like the original Say Anything boombox scene. The first act of the ballet puts all the characters on stage, so you'll want to look for the way that their dancing expresses who they are. This is a 20th century ballet, so the character exposition happens in movement, not mime. That said, the real showstopper in this act is the balcony scene, set to some of the most romantic music in the ballet canon. Though full of difficult lifts and turns, this pas de emotional intensity builds organically until it culminates in Romeo and Juliet's first passionate kiss. And, well, speaking of passion, we've already mentioned those teenage hormones, right? Well, Act 2 is where we really get to see them in action. Juliet and Romeo decide that secretly dating someone their parents truly hate isn't enough. They're going to go all in and get married. 
with help from her nurse and a friar who really doesn't ask enough questions about minors entering into a holy matrimony, Juliet and Romeo become man and wife. It's not long, though, before things start to go sideways. Tybalt and Mercutio get into it again, and despite Romeo's best efforts, Tybalt kills Mercutio. Then Romeo kills Tybalt. Not only is killing your wife's favorite cousin generally a bad idea, but to make matters worse, the Prince of Verona, truly fed up now, banishes Romeo from the city. Thomason worked closely with fight director Marty Pistoni to create all the fight scenes in this ballet, and they're on real display in this act. Look for how intense these scenes are and how carefully choreographed. The more chaotic they seem, the more precise they really are. They required hours of rehearsal. On a lighter note, also keep out an eye out for the three acrobats, often a chance for younger soloists to show off their technique. Particularly look for the moment when the two male acrobats work together to toss their female companion in the air, almost like she's on a trampoline. Act 3 opens with Romeo and Juliet waking up from their first night together. Exile wasn't going to keep them from consummating the marriage, but Romeo does have to sneak out before the Capulets show up in Juliet's bedroom with Paris. When she refuses to marry him, her parents threaten to disown her. Juliet returns to Friar Lawrence, who yet again does not seem to really understand his role as the adult in the situation. Instead of telling her to go fess up to her parents and figure out her life, he gives her a potion to drink that will make her appear dead. The plan, such as it is, is that he'll let, let Romeo know that Juliet's alive, just hanging out in her family crypt for the night, and then they can leave Verona together. Spoiler alert, the plan fails miserably. Romeo never gets that really key bit of information about her actually being alive, unlike in the original Prokofiev libretto, and so he returns to Verona distraught. He sneaks into the crypt where he finds Paris still mourning. They fight, and he mortally wounds Paris. Then Romeo drinks poison and dies. Juliet wakes up and finds herself next to her dead Romeo. She stabs herself. So, what to look for? Notice how the pas de deux in Juliet's bedroom reprises some of the musical and choreographic phrases from the earlier balcony pas de deux, creating a sense of cohesion and arc. Also, of course, watch for the end, when Romeo and Juliet each make the decision that it's better not to live at all than to live without one another. Even without words, their thoughts and intentions are as clear as Shakespeare's. And that's all for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in to Season 4 of To The Point, and meet me right back here for a preview of Swan Lake, the final program of the 2021 digital season. If you haven't checked out our podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thanks for listening and see you on a screen near you.